This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. I'm Aida Osman. And you are blocked by Doja Cat. <laughs> Girl. Is that so? I, it is so, and I probably She's have to been blame blocked! It. Blame it on my rather tasteless <laughs> Keep It from last week that I stand by. So, fuck that. Was it tasteless? She did make fun of people getting coronavirus. That's and true. And then she did get it. I stand by it, 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 but like it could have been a multitude of comments I've made about Doja Cat. It could have been when I was like, True. let's play pin the wig on the Doja anywhere you win. Or uh, it could have been when I said, imagine how good her music would be if she started eating fruit. There's just so many different things it could have been that got me the block. Not implying she has scurvy. <laughs> I love how you took this as an opportunity to give the greatest hits of your Doja Cat comments. Not to, oh, so many more. Not to reconsider so them. More. Yes, yes. Very mm-hmm. exciting. There's B-sides, mm-hmm. too. So we can, we can find those. I would love some deep cuts. Yeah. Yes. Is no that problem. your first celebrity block, Aida? Um, Crystalia blocked me, but this was prior to everything that happened. I just said that he had a concave ass, so he blocked me. Mm. <laughs> and um, I think that was my first big, yeah, my first A-lister. Yeah, my first A-lister block. You're baby. so young. I'm shocked that Crystalia blocked you. I know. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't throw pussy, bro. Got <laughs> Sorry, I'm too busy disturbed at the very vivid image of a concave ass. It's not out of my I head. <laughs> <laughs> I want to serve fruit in it for Doja Cat. <laughs> Lewis, thank you, thank you. what celebrities have blocked you? Oh, let's see. It's usually like film Twitter type people, which is not mm. celebrities. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like, I'll say like the wrong thing about Martin Scorsese and then they get upset. Uh, no, famously. I mean, I think some of them have blocked me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, in terms of like a celebrity, all I know is one time Henry Winkler unfollowed me. This is like years and years ago. And I realized, I don't mm. know that Henry Winkler needed, you know, content about whatever, Juliette Binoche the way I dish it out <laughs> so I actually understand yeah. true yeah I understood when um, Charlize Africa unfollowed me stop wait didn't, but no block right do you have any like no block blocks? No. oh she didn't block I, I would be horrified if Charlize Theron was like get that nigga out my feet <laughs> I'm blocking him uh, <laughs> but um, let's see my first celebrity block ever was John Corbett of oh, Sex wow. in the City fame and United okay. States yes. of Terra. Yes. And I have truly that was one of the ones where I have no idea why it happened like at all. So like maybe it was a blockchain. I even at the time it it was like 6 years ago or something. At the time I did a search of my name and John Corbett and I had never tweeted about him at all. Interesting. Wow. 
Maybe that's what it was. Maybe he did a search and nothing <laughs> came up and he was like, fuck him. But let's see. I have Stephen Amell. Oh, okay. right. Well, now. Of he, Arrow. Correct, yes. He blocked me because I once responded to a tweet of his by writing dad. If you remember <laughs> when gays used to just call everyone dad on the internet who was attracted. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Blocked me for it. <laughs> well, it's very disorienting. Uh, yes. Calvin Harris has me blocked. What? What did you do, girl? Do you remember when he was dating Taylor Swift and then yes. um, there were those paparazzi photos of him leaving a massage parlor and it was implying that he had gotten a happy ending there? And you took it upon yourself to say... I made a joke about it. <laughs> Blocked. <laughs> I mean, did you post something? Like, like, were you the night crawler himself who took the pictures? Why would he block you? I know, right? I think at the time he was going on wild tweets about like libel and suing anyone who even tweeted about it mm-hmm. and i was like girl pick up a dictionary <laughs> <laughs> these are things with basic definitions yes <laughs> also um william shatner <laughs> i have to say about william shatner he released a weird album in about 2002 called has been which is basically him talking over tracks that are sort of melancholy and he reflects on lots of weird things in his life and it is pretty good shockingly other than that I don't pay attention mm. to William Shatner. There's a track with Ben Folds and Amy Mann that's really good. Oh, well, you know I'm a Ben Folds stan. I am, I am from Milwaukee. Oh, yes. And he played some, I feel like he played Summerfest every day, even when Summerfest was not happening. <laughs> Christmas Day, uh, there he is. No. I, d- uh, I, I dated too, ma- too many boys who did college acapella to still like Ben Folds. <laughs> you can't do it anymore. Um, I can't. The William Shatner one is especially wild because that's also something that I had nothing to do with. Back when I worked at BuzzFeed, um, Kate Arthur, who's at Variety now, used to work there. And she did a story about how the NBC show Constantine was not being renewed. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, as apparently a big fan of Constantine, started like tweeting at her that she was, you know, tweeting this stuff without knowledge and uh, was really slandering Constantine. And she was like, I mean, these are my sources. And then he proceeded to block everyone who worked at BuzzFeed. <laughs> that is amazing. I've never liked any TV show that much, let alone Constantine, which I believe is impossible to think about. <laughs> Again, a block is such a hard option. It's something like, if you are tweeting repeatedly at a celebrity, I would understand that kind of reaction, but it just feels so like, why waste your time? Like You, you don't even see them in your feed. Yeah. Anyway, those are my blocks. Those are so my blocks. welcome, Aida. Thank you. I feel knighted. Uh, I feel the good. first of many. I'm sure. I hope. I hope. I'm gonna rack them up. Let's just keep going. Who's next? Though, I, as long as Meg <laughs> the Stallion doesn't. If Meg blocks me, I'm done. I'm deleting every single piece of social media I have. It's a wrap for me. I'm sorry, but Doja Cat, adios. We'll protect you. I'm like your lawyer in this situation. I will talk to Megan herself if it comes to that point. <laughs> You'll mediate for me. Thank yes. You. Mm-hmm. <laughs> keep it law. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, well, this is going to be a riveting episode. You think so? Actually. You think so? Yeah. You know, I think they're just getting bigger as we are um, truly nine episodes from our 150th. Oh, wow. We're like Malcolm wow. in the Middle, honey. We're getting guest yeah. actor Emmys back and forth. Didn't yeah. I join right before the 100th episode? The 100th was <laughs> your your joining. I remember because like I joined, I did one episode, and then I got a plaque. And I was like, <laughs> I 
don't not deserve this. <laughs> 99 episodes were done without me. 98, actually, because I actually maybe 97. But either way, I did not they deserve gave you a, a whole they gave you a plaque. plaque. I got a whole ass plaque sitting on my wall for 100 episodes of Keep It. I did not do. So well, thank you. Now you've earned it. Thank you, Crooked. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Aida, you and I have a wonderful conversation with the author Zadie Smith. One of the best novelists of all time. All time, fully. For the rest of my life, I will get to regret not being a part of that conversation because I had a writing assignment I had to do, and I'm fine with it. Don't worry. I'm sure you all had a lovely time with Zadie, and it worked out. Don't worry. I'm weeping. Love her. Girl, we know you don't read books. True. <laughs> it was difficult. But it's a, her, her new book, uh, Intimations, a bunch of uh, essays and kind of blurby things at the end, is so slim. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, it's a two-hour read that will edify you throughout the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. But then, Lewis, you and I have a conversation with Miss Jean Smart. The Zadie Smith of the screen, if you will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How much do we fucking love Jean Smart? I mean, like, I hate having to reuse certain compliments that I definitely paid to Marsha Gay Harden, but there's just a certain type of person who appears on screen and they're like a character assassin, completely in charge of what's going on. They control a dynamic, completely. Uh, have such authority on the screen and she's one of these people and she is so also fucking hilarious and things. We will talk about the Brady Bunch movie. Yeah. <laughs> you think I won't? <laughs> no, I wasn't <laughs> doubting you. Uh, yeah, She is, um, she's fantastic in so many things and obviously now Emmy nominated for Watchmen mm-hmm. and she has three already. Yep. Scooping them up. It's always exciting to me when um people have the potential to get more Emmys and they are not in Modern Family or a Chuck Lorre show. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say about Alice and Janney and the show Mom? I don't like it. <laughs> also, my favorite thing about Jean Smart is all of the voiceover work that she does that kind of goes quietly. She was the mother in Kim Possible. She actually yes. has a character in Big Mouth. She plays the Depression Kitty. Just love, obsessed. Just obsessed with this woman. We have to stand. Wonderful. And we will stand no choice. in a bit. Uh, and then we're also going to get into the salacious new song, WAP. Mm. And I think you know what that stands for. We are podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> the contempt on my face. I'm looking at myself in my own screen right now. It's, it's conveyed. So don't worry, listeners. Yeah. Knew it was coming. We'll be right back. Believe it or not, there's some whores in this house. <laughs> How many? <laughs> At least three. <laughs> Between the three of us. Wow, this song, standing the test of time. Coming out of your mouth, Ira, it sounded like you were quoting Marion Cotillard's Oscar speech. There is some angels in this city, but you said there are some whores in this house. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the cadence. Wow. <laughs> you you really wet my pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, life. Thank you, love. I do believe there are some whores in this house. Uh, well, for those of you who have been living in a bubble this past week, uh, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion mm-hmm. released their song WAP, which stands for Wet Ass Pussy, unless you have heard the Radio edit, which is 
wet and gushy. Uh, mm. I was so <laughs> mad when I saw the video on YouTube. I want to see the vulgar version on YouTube, please. Yeah, which please. sounds grosser, to be honest. Wet and gushy. Like, so we'll get into that, people calling the song vulgar. Mm-hmm. But I think that wet and gushy somehow sounds worse. I would say the most <laughs> controversial thing about the song is that gushy is a very hard onomatopoeia. Like, I really, it really <laughs> sticks with me. Like a sloshing. Like, it, it's, uh, right. Yeah. It's very mud puddle. Uh-uh. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wet and imagery. gushers. I know. Pick them up at your local store. <laughs> <laughs> I was more dry in Dunkaroos during the 90s, but there you have it. <laughs> mm. uh, but, you know, this is a new joint collabo between the women, and it is about female sexuality. It is in the time-honored tradition of um, women sort of retaking sexual agency in hip-hop away from men who have plenty of songs about fucking women and bitches, etc. And this is like giving me full Little Kim, you know, notorious K-I-M vibes, you know, with like the the songs. I mean, like... She has, like, sucked my dick on that album. That is an anthem, you know? And so I don't know why people are so shocked that this is an explicit song. If you listen to Cardi and Megan's previous music... <laughs> this is a standard. This is a pattern of it behavior. Is. This is not new. Stop acting brand new. Like, And yeah. what the most frustrating thing about all of this is that if anything, women in rap have taken such a, we've lulled out. I'm saying we, as in women. Women have just, like, there's been a lull. We've of heard the, you rapping. The music, leave me alone. <laughs> the music has gotten, the music Parappa has gotten. the rapper. Very. <laughs> the music has gotten very, it's separated from sex and separated from our bodies. I think even right now is when someone like Cupcake, who will say, shove down the dick till the tonsils rip, uh. is bringing us back to, like, the Lil' Kim era. And this is bringing us, remember when Lil' Kim said, deeper than the pussy of a bitch six feet? That is graphic. That is inappropriate. That is all types of messed up sexual. This is what ass pussy pales in comparison to the shit Lil Kim was doing. I said it was one of my favorite lines in hip hop um, on this show before, but like Lil Kim came raring out the gate with. I used to be scared of the dick. Now I throw lips to the shit. Hands on like a real bitch. Mm -hmm. Speak on it. You know my favorite Lil' Kim lyric, right? I mean, we're going to 2003, La Bella Mafia. The song is, of course, The Jump Off. The Jump Off. And the lyric is, let me show you what I'm all about, how I make a Sprite can disappear in my mouth. Let's talk about an image that sticks with you. You truly have not witnessed whiteness at work unless you have been at a party after midnight. And the jump off comes on, and you watch Lewis fly down. Do every do every lyric. The way the way quarantine needs to fucking end right now, so I can see this shit. So I can see this shit, bro. I'm so mad. Uh, get a TikTok, Lewis. Oh God. <laughs> Lil Kim, my cancer sister. She and I actually have the same birthday. So a month ago, as of today, Lil Kim turned probably 25 because she's timeless and ageless, and we love her. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the song and the video debuted at the same time last week, and they immediately went to number one on U.S. Spotify, number six on Global Spotify, and, you know, it had a host of cameos in it. Normani, um, Rosalia, 
And, of course, Miss Kylie Jenner is also in it, which is also probably what blew this to the stratosphere. And, I mean, of course, the internet and myself were, like, shading Kylie's little appearance in this. Uh, Little appearance. (laughs) You know, her appearance um, got her tweeting about it, Kim tweeting about it. So I think that's what made this song so big, you know? Yes. And a cultural sort of phenomenon that people were unable to avoid in a way that was reminiscent most recently of Beyonce's work, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because obviously Beyonce's not like a raunchy rapper, a raptress, but when Formation came out, it became this galvanizing song that was sort of like Republicans and conservatives and, you know, the disciples of Tipper Gore were all able to use it to basically get attention for themselves, you know, right, uh, right. and talk about how it is a racist song. And they talk about her Black Panther performance at the Super Bowl, you know, and then like even when the visual album Beyonce it come out too prior to that you know there were people saying it was too sexy like the song partition etc it's just this need to always police what women are singing and rapping about and it's it's still exhausting and you're usually hearing about it from somebody who is not like a good faith consumer of these artists to begin with yes you know if, yeah. I'm, if I'm looking at uh, of course Ben Shapiro popped up I'm sorry to even orient this conversation close to his identity but yeah like it's like don't like read the lyrics of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and then pretend like oh I was going to buy this except I was offended by Cardi B's lyrics like so you haven't paid attention at all so you're like y- using this as, as, as a soapbox moment for yourself when you are clearly not an authority and frankly mm-hmm. how many times have you talked about black women period ever one time <laughs> yeah probably never you know I find it especially gross because he was specifically reciting the lyrics on his show for some reason I always think he is on Fox News and I never actually know where that garden gnome hosts <laughs> his content uh, I guess it's on YouTube but you know he was reciting the lyrics and it was becoming like a viral moment obviously because everyone's making fun of him reading the lyrics because he has that um, squeaky dog chew toy voice <laughs> I didn't even find it that funny you know because for me he is using racist tropes and claiming that these black women are over sexualizing themselves and sort of bringing women back several years in um, progress when, you know, you're also trying to use these black women's bodies to make yourself famous. It's just like clockwork, you know, like this happens. Other conservatives like that Tommy Laird like likes to do it a lot too, you know, like they always come out with how they feel about these songs and it's always heavily dripping with racism and it's Mm -hmm. also always willfully ignorant and it's also always designed just to get everyone on the internet talking about them and if everyone didn't feel the need to feel like they've won like you've bested ben shapiro right right, uh, right we wouldn't be talking about him you know but we're always talking about him because people delight in like quote tweeting him and memeing him and you know it's like people had to take up the Ann Coulter mantle just yes. what happened to her you know what I mean there has to be someone like that yeah. you want the joke to be easy sometimes and by the way I'm sympathetic jokes are hard I want them to be <laughs> but unfortunately there's like a bunch of 
and Coulter's now, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I remember when it was just her, you know, like fresh out the mausoleum. She was the only one in the game, like releasing these books and talking about like the liberals, you know, and like interacting with like white gay men too, mm-hmm. you know, who could also exist in that, um, you know, Venn diagram of um, people who will allow white supremacy to thrive because of their connection to um, this woman who was, you know, sort of like famous and, you know, like what a provocateur, you know, as they like to call them. Yeah. And, and like all the people who followed her, it's very much about like boiling it down to a quote, I think, yes. that people can pick up on or whatever, uh, dunk on or agree with, you know, it's like simplified. And they love being dunked on. Mm-hmm. But it's not just on that side, too. I'm interested in how Wet Ass Pussy, the song, has been used strategically on both sides. And the way Mm -hmm. people who wouldn't be talking about these songs in general are tweeting and making memes about it, like Viola Davis. And I'm starting to sniff some strategy, I feel like. And it reminds me, Cardi B is a social media connoisseur turned rapper who knows how to invoke all of the, to get all the publicity that she needs to do, doing Kylie Jenner stunts, defending that. Let's remember that Meg Thee Stallion was with Tory Lanez and Kylie Jenner and Kendall Jenner when she got her foot shot. Like, what is happening on that side that what sacrifices are being made by other black women at the cost of other black women? That's, I think, something that I can't stop thinking about when I watch Wet Ass Pussy. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, I want to say the Internet decided Viola Davis was a part of this situation. Like she, She was memed into, which like whatever put viola davis in everything this is not a yeah. not a new sentiment but uh, mm. uh it was interesting hearing her chime in <laughs> well the beauty of the video too is that it's like this fun house so it's um cardi and megan going through this fun house and discovering other women like dancing in other rooms and one of the funniest memes was someone spliced in uh viola davis uh yeah. dancing from <laughs> um, how to get away with murder with <laughs> annalise keating into the video because if you've seen mm-hmm. how to get away with murder they love having viola davis dance on that show and she <laughs> usually does it while drunk because well, her an alcoholic too and it's it's always hilarious pining for her white husband in every scene that's cardi you know engaging with that stuff you know and like she knows how to work social media like just this morning uh, she was tweeting back and forth with Charlie Puth about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. And she said she was fanning out, which, again, yeah. always on the right team, this woman. Um, yeah. There's lots of large wild cats in the video, which led me to want to tweet that the video is Punanji. But then I thought, can how do we feel about white people saying the word Punani, which I so associate with the movie Poetic Justice and black people talking about their own sexuality? I feel like I would have cringed and liked okay, is what so, would have happened. Yeah. I would have happened. Uh, I'm glad you doubled back, but I feel like I don't actually have opinions <laughs> about that. I don't have opinions about that. I would have wondered if this tweet came from like 2001. <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard Punani in a minute. It would remind me of another celebrity who should have blocked me, Kumail Nanjiani, when I called him Kumail Punanjiani. That oh. reminds me <laughs> of that situation. So we're in sync. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we're definitely in sync. We're definitely in sync. You love the same jokes, but Believe it or not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that came from the lyrics of the song, of course, where she uh, says, Punani, Punani Dasani. Yes. Which yes, too. Is, yeah. I mean, let's, talk, are, let's talk about nutrients. There, there we are. are actually some, some lyrics that I think that can we, I would be remiss not to mention. Like, I want you to touch that little dangly thing that swing in the back of my throat. Love that lyric. Mm. Which actually comes right before Punani Dasani. Mm. Um, another lyric, uh, put that Big Mac truck right in this little garage. That's it. That's where I... Yes. Uh, I love Megan's line, Your Honor, I'm a freak bitch. Handcuffs, <laughs> leeches, 
shift the wig, make him think he cheating. Love that. Mm. Love mm. that. I caught Love it. Cheating. <laughs> She's so good. Cheating. She's getting better <laughs> and better every single song. Truly she is. And I will say one of the pluses of this is just seeing both of these women at the top of their game. I was trying to find a recent pop cultural moment to sort of like compare it to because it almost I almost wanted to say like telephone. Yeah. But they're not quite where Beyonce and Gaga were at the time when they collabed for telephone. Mm-hmm. You know, this is still like an early vibe for both of them because it's it's still both of their second albums, you know? Yes. I just remember Cardi when um Bodak Yellow came out, you know, like people wondering like, is she gonna be a one hit wonder? And like I know. she stays on the charts and the songs are fun and Megan is finally coming into her own as well, you know, and collaborating with the right people. Because um I love this new era of women in rap where, like, she featured some other rappers in the video, too, at the end, you know? And it's like, Megan has worked with everybody. Yes. You know, she's got Beyonce, she's got Nicki, uh, she's got this Cardi song, you know? It's like, it, it's long gone from that era where... Um, Nikki, unfortunately, like felt like she had well, to Nikki be. Well, Nikki tainted women in rap. She literally disbarred women from entering rap. <laughs> and, now, and then when Cardi B came up, she's like, I have to relent. I guess that this woman is going to take my spot. And then Cardi B did that and then was inclusive to other women. So we're actually ushering in a new era of music entirely. Like yeah. the next five years, not only do women dominate rap right now, more and more women are about to, to dominate all of music. So it's just a very yeah. exciting time. Yeah. And not that I would say that it was all. Nikki's fault. I mean, she has been, you know, obviously sort of kept that kitty cat on reclusive. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Um, Not playing with the other girls on the playground, you know, but like a lot of that obviously stems from women in hip hop being treated as there can only be one of you, you know, and like you're feeling like you're fighting um, with one another. um, And they, black people are made to do that in white spaces. Black queer people are made to do that. Black women are made to do that, you know, so it's it's not shocking. Bit of the Highlander. <laughs> They're gonna, you know. Oddly enough, I mean, you guys are talking about Ann Coulter. I think that Nicki Minaj suffered from the same thing Ann Coulter did in her field, which is like, Nicki was the only woman on Young Money Records, and she was encouraged to be like, fuck Remy Ma, fuck Lil' Kim. So they created a culture for her where she was the only one and had to remain the only one, so she wasn't inviting to other rappers. Yeah. Now, men aren't dominating and like signing these women. These women are being independent, getting signed to big labels, or doing it from the ground up. So, again, things are changing. I want to also point out a reference that Ira made earlier that I was just thinking about. Tipper Gore. This whole thing really took me back to the 80s when Tipper Gore was the head of something called the Parents Music Research Center. And uh, she picked 15 filthy songs that were like the worst thing that could ever be on radio. And it was the beginning of putting stickers on albums and things like that. But what was interesting to me was it was the moment before hip hop kind of took over popular culture. And the idea of female sexuality that she resented now feels incredibly quaint. Madonna's yes. Dress You Up is on that list. It was the Filthy 15. Yes. Um, These songs that were on it. And it's not just Madonna's Dress You Up. It is uh, the Mary Jane Girls In My House Cindy Lauper's Sheba. <laughs> what? Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls. 
I'm just saying, isn't it crazy? Is it not? I mean, I can't. At the time, what she was railing against really was she bought her daughter a Purple Rain album, and of course, Darling Nikki's on that album. By the way, can we talk about Darling Nikki for a second? Masturbating in the lobby with a magazine. So she's a prostitute, but would she be masturbating with a magazine in the lobby? I never understood that. Anyway, oh, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. So, you know, <laughs> Your honor, that I'm was a so sex well done. Fiend. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like Tipper Gore basically went away after a couple of years. You know, became second lady, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. it's like she couldn't even handle hip-hop coming to the fore. It was a big railing against heavy metal music, too, which at the time was a lot more, I guess, vulgar than we think of it now. It seems like any artist with eyeliner was on the list is pretty much what I'm deducing. (laughs) Yeah, But, you know, there were also... men on it, you know, like Black Sabbath was on it, Def Leppard, um, Twisted Sister. People do sort of forget before, like, NWA and, you know, shit, you know, like, where people were like, who, these black people are, are, say, are saying nigga a lot in songs and, like, fucking the police. A lot of it was white men are being too sexy, you know? And, like, mm-hmm. talking about, like, violence in their songs and... um Fucking women, too. So, like, a lot of this, too, when you see people sort of, um, like, naysaying and um, saying that, like, black women are degrading themselves. Which you see a lot. That There have been a few yes. quotes about that. Yeah, White men have been doing this for decades. And there was a time when um, their lyrics were also just sort of, like, regarded as too raunchy or not allowed for um, children and public consumption. But they were never degraded in the way obviously the black women are you know like they were never said that they were making white men look bad um by singing um let me put my love into you (laughs) (laughs) and then famously three people came to the defense of these artists who kind of like testified on behalf of how ridiculous this whole situation was and they were john denver Mm. d snyder from twisted sister whose song we're not going to take it was on the list and frank zappa and my question is are there people we want now to like jump up and that we wouldn't think would stick up for white ass pussy, but it would be nice to hear from them. Like John legend. Do you have it in you? I don't know. (laughs) 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 Lastly, you know, I would just say that like, it is a joy to have these women on the scene doing it. You know, it's a fucking hilarious song and a good song. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's so funny. It's hilarious. The video is truly iconic. And I don't use that word lightly. Like, it is a great, fun video to put on. Like, it's it's so fun housey. It's bright and colorful in this Almodovar, um, like, Willy Wonka sort of, like, way. Yeah. And it's just, like, entertaining and, like, most pleasing to me to watch, you know? And <laughs> as a, you know, black queer kid who I feel like grew up in a culture where, you know, you are hearing a lot of men talk about sexuality um and sort of trying to come to terms with your own um i was always drawn to you know like little cams and trinas you know and foxy browns you know and now it is just (sighs) great that um you have people like cardi and megan um just fully owning their sexuality and you can sing along to these songs and you know relate to them (laughs) in a sense you know and um just feel like you're connecting with other people who are listening to music too, you know? You're not just listening to um, Il Nana in your room alone and <laughs> feeling embarrassed about it, you know? 
<laughs> Which, by the way, let's also shout out the career of Khalees, who has had so many great songs in the raunch category that are also so funny. I feel like yeah. she's somebody, I, I forget, I stand her occasionally. Yeah. Uh, Khalees was here, Kaleidoscope, Tasty, I love all those albums. I mean, in public. Best song. Her song on the album, mm-hmm. Tasty, is sexy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Blindfold Me from Khalees was here. I know we've talked about that one before. Yeah. But. So, more celebrating these women and less, um, I mean, we're not, we're not going to solve it here. Clearly, but you know, like I, w- I would like a world where, like, you know, these wannabe and Coulters, like, you find some way to just like stop giving them um, oxygen. Yeah, I wish you could downvote on Twitter and they would just have to disappear, etc. You know, yeah. Reddit does one thing well, <laughs> just the one thing. <laughs> Uh, all right, Aida, when we're back, uh, you and I are going to talk to Zadie Smith about her new book, Intimations, and also being an artist and writing in the midst of this pandemic. How's she doing it? <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. We'll be right back. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Well, we are very excited to have Zadie Smith here with us, who has this new book of essays, Intimations, which is absolutely gorgeous. Thank you for joining us. I mean, Aya and I are big fans of yours. Massive fans. Massive fans. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Glad to be here. It's such a great great honor to be um, not with one of my favorite novelists of my time, but of all time, and just to be here at all with you is wonderful. You're great. I've loved you for years and years, so thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thanks, guys. I know what to say. Yeah. It's okay. okay. You often know what to say, so it's okay to write now. Okay. No, not know what to say. This is a book of essays that you wrote recently during 
COVID during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Can we just ask, you know, like what your thought process was in coming up with this and needing to get something out? I, re- I mean, there was a chapter in it too called Something to Do where um, you essentially just sort of call us all out as writers. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this idea of um, writing and art in general was always just something to do in essence. Right. And now we're in a period where everyone needs something to do. And right. being a writer, especially in this time period, just feels sort of, I guess that's what you're doing because you do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I really wasn't thinking about writing a book at all. I was just, I, I was quite mentally ill, I think, for the first <laughs> month and a half. And I, I just couldn't really... I couldn't get myself together at all, you know. And my, my other half, Nick, he was very practical. He was in full hazmat suits going to get food and doing all that stuff. And I, I was kind of catatonic and and also very petulant like a child. <laughs> I just didn't want it to be true, so I just refused. I don't know if any of you had that response. I was just like, hell no. Denial. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in total denial. And I was really miserable and I was very monosyllabic and I was making everybody in my family's life pretty intolerable, I think. <laughs> and then Nick said, well, maybe the thing is that, you know, you don't, you're not getting to do what you want. Maybe you need to do what you want. So we'll make a childcare deal. You do two hours or whatever in your room and if, see if that works. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how it began, really, just having a few hours by myself, not really to write, actually, at that point, just to read and to think and to be free, particularly of the television and of the internet, just because it was not, none of that was really helping me. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how it started, just reading, and the reading suggested writing, as it often does to me. And then I think I wrote, there's one essay called Suffering Like Mel Gibson, which is about different kinds of suffering. And I sent it to my a friend of mine, who, in fact, you might know Candice Carty Williams, who wrote that book, Queenie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great young black British author. And I was kind of aware that we were in very different situations. I, I was trapped with my family. She was trapped alone. You know, whenever I talked across those experiences with various people, not just Candice, I'd be aware of both parties feeling resentful, bitter, mm-hmm. and unable to communicate, basically, like because everything looked greener in everybody else's backyard. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote it, I I sent it to her. It was just a way of communicating, I guess. And she wrote back and just said, oh, thank you for sending that. And I thought, oh, maybe these things could be for somebody else other than just me. And that's how the book came about, really, thinking that maybe they might be useful and then realizing they could be useful in a practical way, like in a a money way. And once I I realized that, then it became my something to do. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mentioned suffering like Mel Gibson. That was, have you ever been reading something and everything in it synchronizes with your life so oddly that it terrifies you. I had just gotten off the phone with my cousins in Sweden, who, of course, as you, some people may know, they didn't go into lockdown in the initial phase right. of the coronavirus. And they're immigrants there who are, you know, the refugees of war from Ethiopia who are kind of struggling to settle down. And they refer to the iPad in Swedish as, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but which means the third parent in Swedish. And um, right as I got off the phone with them, I read Suffering Like Mel Gibson, where you're talking about what I'm feeling, the pressures of being an artist in isolation and how time itself is taking, as you say, an accusatory look, this judgmental cast. But um, also reminded me that I, unlike you, I would like to say, and I hope you would allow me to say, I'm not an essential writer. And I feel like you 
are an essential writer and have been <laughs> for years and years. And I was wondering if that pressure or that potentially societal expectation for you to be writing was felt during this time, other than this just being something to do. Were you ever wondering, I wonder if people want to know what I'm thinking or if people need to know what I'm thinking? I, I know what you mean, but to me to have that thought would be like, it'd be like having some kind of like narcissistic Christ complex. <laughs> I, try not to, I try not to think that way. You know, I, I try and write without any knowledge of audience as much as possible, which is not, you know, it's not entirely possible because I've been doing it for a long time. And of course, I'm aware that I have readers, as writers like to say. Mm -hmm. But for me to write at all, most of the time I have to not be thinking about them. When you're writing, the only thing that matters really is the truth. So whatever allows you to tell the truth, you have to create. And I guess in my case, it's an artificial environment in which I pretend that I'm writing for myself or for very close friends. And then and then it's published and then I try and ignore <laughs> that, that part of it. That's basically how, how I work, have done for years. Mm -hmm. Getting into that process a bit too, how would you say that going about writing these pandemic aside or maybe even pandemic affecting it your writing process is different um for something like this than normally when you sit down and um think about a story that you want to tell right um, or are you a person who just sort of like just likes to write and then find something come to you you know the main difference i know it, it sounds stupid but it, it was the fact that it was for something mm-hmm my my daughter who's 10 she heard overheard me doing a podcast or something and she said you didn't redirect the world to help anyone you did it to make yourself feel good it's classic my daughter <laughs> comment <laughs> and, then, and then I thought about it, I thought in a way she's right in that it, it was it simplified everything about writing to me for the first time in my life you know it because I knew what I was doing it for which I normally don't know or I have guilty feelings about it or in a way it was far easier to write in that way. She's right about it. It wasn't just a practical matter. It ended up being a, a functional one in the writing that I had a, a purpose and it was very simple and very direct and it had to be done speedily in order to make a difference in, in the time. When I think about my friends who are activists or like my mum works in the National Health Service, uh, people who I guess have proper tasks, they often have that in front of them. They know what they're doing, they know why they're doing it and then they do it. That whole sentence doesn't usually apply to what I do. I usually have no idea what I'm doing or why I'm doing it or how long it's going to take. Or, it, it was a very, one of the purest writing experiences of my life because I just was extremely focused mm -hmm. with not a lot of time for angst or second thoughts. You know, I, I just, I just had to get it done. So it was good in that way. And that's because, yes, the proceeds of the book are going to the Equal Justice Initiative and the COVID-19 right. Emergency Relief Fund for New York. And um, I and I aren't particularly activists, but, you know, we, we're also television writers. I think she can agree that we both sort of had a moment beginning of this where you're doing things and, like, maybe even taking on other different, like, writing projects or things to right. raise money for people. Yeah. And it felt like you know, just something that we can all yeah. accomplish. Otherwise, it's, it's, yeah, it does feel pointless. What kind of telly do you write? Um, so I wrote on a uh, sci-fi series um, called Daybreak. It was on Netflix. Oh, I haven't seen it. Uh, it was a one-season show that ended, uh, but I had a really great time. I love one-season yeah. shows. I love one. Yeah. They're close to my heart. <laughs> I always think they're beautiful. Uh, and just, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, and just finished writing on one that comes out next year, Q4, so it's an animated um, sort of of like queer James Bond story. That sounds amazing. I'm excited for that one. I'm excited yes. for that one. 
And Aida, you know, is working on this show, Betty, for HBO. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's, mm. yeah, and also I write for Big Mouth, which is an animated show. And oh, yeah, I know Big There Mouth. you go. So <laughs> it's uh, hard to apply yourself to writing, you know, dick jokes every day when the world is suffering. <laughs> but, you know, somebody has to do it. Somebody has to do yeah. it. Somebody has to. You stepped up. You exactly. Stepped up. Yes. Mm. A martyr of sorts. But, um, yeah. <laughs> it, was very, it was very helpful, I think, because... I was in a weird position where that last show, we were working on it when this hit. Yeah. So my first two and a half months of this pandemic were still doing the same job that I had been hired to do before. So I feel like that's why I did not go insane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of going insane, I, um, (laughs) every essay in this, in this book, but, um, (laughs) um, (laughs) you talk so non-morbidly about survival and survivance and what it looks like. And you mentioned that you just simply are not a survivor. And if death, you know, if suicide gave you their hand, you would go into it passively. And I related to that so deeply and so, um, it was so nice to just see someone express that sentiment in a matter-of-fact way, in a way that, like I said, was non-morbid. And I wanted to ask you, a lot of this book is about reevaluating things you maybe took for granted in our quote-unquote old life. Right. But how much of your life currently, now that we're like six months in, however many, whatever time is at this point, um, how much of your life is looking forward to new things now? What does the future have cast over it? in your opinion? I, I, if I'm honest, I'm having a real problem with the whole concept of the future. Mm-hmm. It's like I've stopped believing in it. It's, <laughs> it's, in order for change to happen, people have to believe in the future. I find the environmental disaster somewhat overwhelming mm-hmm. as a concept. Mm-hmm. I can get through everything else <laughs> and think of the possibility of change and political change and social change, and then I can cheer myself to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then I remember <laughs> that the other thing. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so that part, I do, I, I do find it hard to think of the future. And uh, I, I just have nothing but admiration, particularly for the really young environmental activists. They blow my mind. If it were me and I was 18, it would just, I would just get some weed and I would just spit it out. <laughs> I'll wait for it to cool down. I, right. I would just be like, oh, no, I'm... I, but they, they're not doing that. They're like on fire mm-hmm. and so determined. That I find really incredible. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter about my particular future, but my children, particularly that date, which I guess 15, 20 years ago, we were always talking about 2050 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as some kind of apocalyptic end of times date. And it's just really close now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, right, you're right. TikTok. It's like... Yeah, it's really not that far. And, you know, I, I can imagine things happening in that day. So all, all of that, my imagination fails. I really, I'm really aware of my failure to imagine how, how to continue in this kind of, particularly in the, in the New York frame of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not there anymore, but New York works in this kind of narcissistic circle of seasons, fashion seasons, book seasons, yes. all of that just mm-hmm. seems to me like arrant nonsense. I can't. I cannot engage with it at any level anymore. Yeah. Which is lucky because I'm not there, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're in Los Angeles, you know, and mm. even the idea of returning to, I mean, we cover politics and pop culture on this show. So, like, mm. even the idea of returning to award shows and seasons, yeah. and like, oh. all of it feels like 
how are you doing this, accomplishing yeah. any of it. Yeah. But I, I will say that thinking of um, the future and like imaginations, it's like um, there's a part in your one of your essays, you know, where you just sort of talk about like what art is in whether or not it's essential. And like a lot of us as artists tell ourselves, you know, like change happens from art, you know? And so like people will read mm -hmm. something and then like be affected by it. But you also, you know, point out, you know, like a painter's not going to put something on a canvas like at 2 p.m. and then 4 p.m. things are going to change. But, you know, no. when I think about the way that art has a way of um, just sort of giving us solace now. Yes. I'm normally a reader, but I've been, I read so much more during this um, right. <laughs> pandemic and, you know, also in preparation of this, like rereading some of my favorite things of yours. And I was just yes. thinking about, you know, just white teeth, for instance, mm. you know, that opening with Archie, that's what Aida mentioned, you know, sort of like the writing about something morbid, but in a non-morbid way. And just, right. I don't know, rereading that moment for me just sort of um, opened us up to the idea of things are ending, but there's always the chance that someone's going to knock on your car window and stop, <laughs> yeah. stop the world from ending. No, I, in a way, I'm really optimistic. Like, what's happened, this complete break with the kind of time we're talking about, I mean, a little facetiously, award season time, fashion time, but mm -hmm. however you translate it, we all know what we we're talking about, this kind of hamster wheel that particularly in America we were entirely engaged with. The stopping of that is good. It's good to notice different kinds of time. Like, I, I notice myself noticing things like, you know, biological time, the time of trees, <laughs> of flowers, <laughs> that I had not attended to in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And that too is reality, you know. It's, it's not just, you know, the time of Twitter, the time of Instagram, the time of news cycles. There's other times. And when you're attentive to other kinds of times, you're attentive to other kinds of ways of being alive. Like I, I'm really engaged with the local for the first time in my life, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really in front of me people in front of me, the streets in front of me, the shops in front of me, mm -hmm. human life in front of me. And that too can be a real engine of change. Like it's like waking up from the blue pill to me, like from a global dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's got to be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> the global humbling, as I will steal from yeah. your book <laughs> and call yeah. it from here on out. Yeah. The first essay in the book, Peonies, mm -hmm. I had to stop myself and go outside and just look at leaves or do something and remind myself about submitting to nature. And I wanted to ask you, because you play with the idea of submission so much in that first essay, whether it be women submitting to our nature, whether it be, right. um, you know, your writing and using, write, bending words to your own will and allowing writing and right. words to submit to yourself. How much have you considered, and I'm sure you have, but submitting to your nature of being a writer like does that feel innate in you that has definitely happened I, I think I used to fight it the proof to me was writing these essays that that when it came to it I was not physically brave I wasn't morally brave I wasn't anything apart from able to do this so, so that became clear there is such a thing as your nature mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been watching that Michael Jordan documentary and mm. one of the things my husband said and it really struck me is that that man is a king. I don't mean that as a piece of rhetoric. I mean, he would have been a king yep. any time mm -hmm. that you would have found him in human history. He would have been a king in West Africa in 1750, mm -hmm. would have been a king in England in 1013. He's kingly and he leads people. It's part of his nature. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that there are people like that has taken me a long time 
to understand that, that, that there are such a thing as genuine sensibilities. They can be changed and morphed and developed. And, but sometimes when you see something like that, you're like, well, that's kingliness right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> and what, and what, what I have is, is writerliness and it is something in me that I guess isn't going to go away. <laughs> but that idea of, of submission, um, I thought a lot about it. Like a lot of our arguments are kind of independence arguments, racial, sexual, gender. We've only got one vision of triumph, which is kind of, uh, I'll do what I want. <laughs> I'll do it on my own terms. In my, It's very American, this idea of my personal liberty. And it aligns almost perfectly with the idea of capital, right? You'll do what you want on your own timeline, with your own money, in your own way. And, blah, blah. and we've got no picture of liberation aligned with nature or outside of that system of capital, mm-hmm. outside of you can do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. I, I'm always amazed culture is about the development of forms against the humiliating submission to nature. Submitting to nature is humiliating. <laughs> and there are many ways that we fight it, like, you know, not dying of polio, <laughs> which, which I am fully... Fully behind, and that's a wonderful thing. But, but there are, of course, limits. There are limits. Death is the ultimate one. The arguments about the other ones are, you know, on fire at the moment, biological limits, gender limits. I don't think any of these things are set in stone. We don't have to submit to nature entirely. But sometimes it is worth remembering that we are at one with nature. We're not machines. We, we are part of this system. And part of this system involves loss. Loss is a part of life. And I think sometimes in our arguments of self-identification we, that's the bit we don't we don't ever want to think about simple things like you can't have everything you know even that sentence to a lot of us who are you know young and plugged into the machine is an outrage what do you mean i can't have everything mm-hmm. but the older you get the more it becomes clear to you you can't have everything and it, it doesn't have to be a disaster not to have everything mm-hmm. i can't be young for example forever that's not going to happen for me you know all the surgical interventions all the rest of it I don't find them liberating, you know, to me, that's not liberating. To me, acceptance of what's coming mm-hmm. would be real freedom. Mm-hmm. So some, that's, those kind of debates interest me. There seems to be almost no space for the idea that me accepting old age, for example, is anything but a loss. It might not be. Me paying to reconstruct my body every six months might be somebody's win, but not mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be capitalism's win, <laughs> but my body might, might want to lose slowly and get old and die because that's that's what it's there to do yeah I, i'm interested in all those, those places where being human doesn't it always involve the win in the end everybody loses their life so progressing towards that line is is worth perhaps consideration well it's reminding me of i don't know if you've seen annihilation the alex garland film oh. Um, yes. No, I can't wait. I yes. love Alex. Yes. Yes. What a genius. It's I actually a, just watched it, it, Ex Machina it, again last night. <laughs> yeah. I have to tell you a story about Alex Garland. Have you got a minute? Yes, Please. of course. <laughs> Please tell us a story. <laughs> when I was very young, I think maybe we we're exactly the same age, maybe he's a bit older, but he had just written The Beach and it was the mm-hmm. biggest book just in the world. And then it was an enormous <laughs> movie. And we were both, at, I think it was called the Guardian First Book Award. I think he was just winning it maybe. And I don't know what I was doing at the party. My book was not yet published or about to be published. And he was rolling cigarettes at that party. And it was like the whole of a literary establishment. <laughs> and I was like, wow, Alex, he's a North London boy as well. I was like, this is amazing. He's like, this is not amazing. This is, this, this is boring. I'd rather be home playing video games. These fucking people are terrible. Fuck all this. I was like, 
oh, okay. <laughs> I've never seen anyone so unimpressed by this thing that had come to embrace him. And sure enough, after I think he wrote one more book and then he was just like, I'm out. <laughs> I went, I'm going to go conquer movies these, and then yeah, TV. He made amazing movies and fantastic television, but I was always, I just loved him at that party. He was so, he just could not give a shit for any of it. I was like, I, I want to be like that guy. I love that. Because he didn't care. He wanted to be home playing video games and doing whatever he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it's such a, a gift not caring what other people think. He had it from the get go. <laughs> God bless that guy. I want his self-help book now. I know, yeah, thank you. <laughs> He's the best. <laughs> In one of the essays, you talk about how you, you're never a person who gets massages or like manicures because like they take too long like, and you love to read. Right. You can't read during them. You're, are you a person who doesn't listen to books on tape then? You prefer to read? I don't. It doesn't make any sense. I love listening to podcasts. I love books. I can't listen to books on tape. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I once tried to listen to Proust, but I just got distracted. I'm doing other things. I think when I'm reading, I want to see the words on the page mm-hmm. myself. I can't. I can't be having somebody acting them to me. Mm. Yeah, it's annoying. I get it. <laughs> Super annoying. <laughs> I remember finding a speech of yours on YouTube or something a while back that was about how much reading is actually like playing an instrument. It's like reading music. Yeah. Like you are engaging mm-hmm. with it. And if I'm reading, if I'm listening to it on audio. It's like, mm-hmm. pause, rewind, I don't know what you said, I don't remember, right. how can I engage with the text if there's no text to engage with? So I, I feel like I, I relate. I think it'd be, if it's a bad book, I think it would be better. If it's like <laughs> something that really doesn't matter about the prose and you just, it's like plot crazy and I could do that, but mm-hmm. yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't like it. I get mm-hmm. it. I mean, as a writer too, one of my favorite things about reading is... Um, I'm a fast reader, but it will take a long time to get through an especially good book because I'm constantly putting it down and then like Googling, what is this word or um, this reference that's being made? And it's harder to do when you're listening. This is it. Also, if you look at the pages are, I've I've written on every page, underlined a million (laughs) things. Like I can't do that with audio. So no. Yeah, I I got a note. But I love in. In podcasts, I love a human voice, just somebody talking to me. That mm-hmm. I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Expressing themselves. That's my favorite. <laughs> Books on tape will always remind me of just my grandmother driving yeah. um, me to school. <laughs> and me. She would, always be listen- she would always be listening to a, um, like a Perot novel. Oh, oh, oh God. God. Yeah. I love a bit of Perot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. well, thank you so much for being here, Zadie. Thank you, Zadie. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank yes. You. It was really, it's really lovely to meet you. both of you. you yeah. Well. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com.
Our second guest today is one of the most prolific TV actresses of all time, a three-time Emmy winner with a nomination this year for her role in Watchmen as a Laurie Blake. Please welcome Jean Smart. Lewis and I are um, huge fans of your work. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, and um, you on Watchmen is fantastic. And um, congrats on another Emmy nomination. Oh, I was really happy about this one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, you have three already, yes? That's the tiara and the earrings. I'm going for the brooch. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yes. That is and, what um, I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> How does this feel different, getting, you know, like an Emmy nomination for this one? And... What was it just sort of like when you were getting your first Emmy nomination? Like, how has that feeling changed from then to now? Well, it's it's different just in the sense that it's not the first time, you know. Yeah. When you're an Emmy virgin. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I was particularly pleased about this one because I'm so proud of the show. And, you know, the show got a Peabody Award, which is hugely meaningful. And just the fact that the show has been not only so entertaining, you know, and so much fun to watch, but also, I mean, it literally is part of, you know, a national discourse right now of a lot of things that are going on. And it was almost prophetic in some of the things in the store. I remember emailing Damon and saying, can you believe what's going on, you know, after what you wrote? I mean, the the concept of, well, first the masks and obviously the police brutality, the fact that he set the story against that historical event in Tulsa was hugely important, and it didn't feel uh, forced or imposed at all. It really worked, I thought, brilliantly, and he put an enormous amount of thought into it. And and then also, too, the whole idea of humanity being faced with a common enemy, you know, so that they stopped fighting amongst themselves, which you could say is the coronavirus. I don't know if that's happened yet that we've stopped fighting amongst ourselves and <laughs> <laughs> working with Damon Lindelof um who I've loved you know since um lost you know like how, what was it like um meeting him and hearing the idea for Watchmen because I think I read that you weren't familiar with Watchmen before so what was it like learning just about this world and just did you feel that um he was really trying to tell this important story and um, you were part of something that people really were going to talk about. I would like to say that that's exactly how it was, but <laughs> 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 I met him over the phone, didn't meet him for a very long time after that. He was absolutely delightful. It was the very sort of last minute thing. And I, I gave him a hard time because I said, you know, obviously you'd been waiting to hear from somebody else who turned you down because now, you know, you're coming to me like 72 hours before I have to get on an airplane. Um, <laughs> if I win, I'll thank her. But um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he was couldn't have been nicer. And he said, please, just anything you want to know, tell me. And he basically talked about, you know, what was going to happen in the first part of the story for Lori. And, and then I went out for drinks with Leela Bayak, who, you know, one of his brilliant writers. And she's the one who sort of filled me in on the whole Watchmen story and Lori's family and her relationships. And, and then I got an airplane. 
with a copy of the book in my hand, clutched tightly. <laughs> now, I don't want to be petty and bring this back to the Emmys, but as I tell many of our guests, I have a syndrome where I believe awards are extremely important. So I'm just going to indulge it for a second. The people in this category for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series or Movie are like professional Emmy collectors, every single one of them. <laughs> so up and down, Uzo Aduba, Tony Collette, Margot Martindale, Holland Taylor, and Tracy Ullman. I mean, just like these people are surrounded by statues, including you. I have to say really quick, Miss Aduba just sent me a beautiful arrangement of pink roses congratulating me. Oh, how cool. I've never met her. Aww. I thought, that is so classy. I kept telling my agent, you got to get me her address. <laughs> when you see a field like that, and you've now been nominated, are we looking at like 16 times or something? Like just tons and tons of times. <laughs> a whole bunch. Do you then go rush out and watch all the other work? Like, does the race matter to you at all? Or is it just fun? Or how do you take it? It's mostly fun. Mm -hmm. You know, when people say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's the nominate, being nominated that counts. And, you know, it, it, but it really is. I mean, it's... Um, if you win, that's frosting on the cake, and it's it's fun. And it's kind of a fun thing right now because everybody's been sort of miserable and paranoid and, <laughs> you know, trying to keep their sanity. So it was kind of a, a bright spot in a not-so-great week that I was having, so that was nice. But it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a celebration of our industry and just kind of felt like, oh, there's a little bit of normalcy that's coming back. <laughs> coming back. Not everything has gone away, you know, so that, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh Thinking about just like the roles that you were nominated for too, you know, they're, they're, they're comedies, you know, like, and you, you won for um, Frasier twice, uh, and then there's Samantha Who, which I adored. Uh, you and Christina Applegate on that show were just fantastic. I love her. <laughs> um, and now here is this one um, for Watchmen, and um, you've won mostly for comedies, you know. I just sort of wonder, do, do you enjoy one over the other? I don't know. I mean, I, I would never want to have to choose. That would be very difficult because both are very satisfying in completely different ways. It's sort of like the difference between doing something on camera and doing something on stage. It, it's just completely different, and it would be hard to choose which was you know, the favorite. You are truly one of the few people I can think of who the roles are so varied in trying to empathize with you, being like, what is it like in Gene Smart's head? I feel like you watching any other performance, you would almost have no choice but to think about how you would do it. Is it easy for you to just sit back and be entertained? Or do you immediately go into professional like actor mode and like think about the choices you would make when you watch something? And is that fun for you? Oh, you mean when I'm watching somebody else? Yeah. No, I'm a great audience. I, I will go wherever you want me to go. I'm, I'm a great audience. I'm in for the ride. I, I cry at toothpaste commercials. <laughs> no, sure. There, there. Obviously, there are times when I think, where was I when they were casting that part? I'd have been so much better. The petty actress part of me. But um, no, I, I, I'd like to just sit back and be entertained. I, like, for instance, I'm watching, I just started watching Succession. I didn't watch it when it first started. I'd heard about it, and I heard it was very good, and I knew that it was on Obama's list of favorite shows, his yeah. short list, including Watchmen, so that just thrilled me. But I thought, <laughs> well, I have to, if, if Obama likes Succession, i got to check it out. And I just instantly addicted. It's one of my favorite shows. I have not stopped talking about it's it. It's almost <laughs> flawless. It's just flawless. I have recently been revisiting Designing Women on Hulu since it's all up there, you know? And... um I just want to know like, what you think about that show now in retrospect. It's interesting watching it in conjunction with 
Watchmen too, you know, because Watchmen is a show, you know, talking about um, race in America and, you know, like how we have um, sort of painted over a lot of things in history. Um, and it is interesting, I just for me, you know, watching Designing Women now in 2019, 2020, and seeing just this fun, you know, series, but it's also, you know, like, about women in the South, you know? And is that a show that we would have different opinions about if it were made now? Well, I, I mean, I get the impression that some people think that some of the stuff was was racist. I'm assuming they're talking about uh, with uh, Meshach's character, Anthony. Um, mm. Now, obviously, his relationship with Delta... I mean, it was shocking sometimes the, the things the two of them would get up to. But the humor of that was that it was so obvious that she was – that her racism was sort of secondary to her just being an unbelievably self-absorbed person who just treats everybody like crap, you know, and treats everybody like they're there to facilitate her and, you know, wax her legs and walk her pig. And, you know, I mean, she does that with everybody. <laughs> so it was just sort of fun watching her be – that I don't know. What do you What do you think? I mean, I'm curious. As... Yeah, you know, I actually really enjoy it. Um, and I I've come from theater, you know, too. So like, I just enjoy that. Like each, especially in that first season, like so much of it feels like you're all just doing a play on stage. Like it's just jokes and the interactions. Like that's just fun. Um, yeah, you know, I just I'm just was just thinking about the overall idea of um, the glamorization maybe of the South in the past, like the Confederate age, and then just thinking about um, the conversations that are had in Watchmen. Yeah, you're right. We would have we would have had different conversations about it, but I mean, I think that, in fact, I had a conversation with Linda Bloodworth-Thomason uh, just last week about that, mm. and she just felt that, you know, for better or worse, she, she was telling the truth about certain kinds of people. So she felt that she was really just telling the truth about in a funny way, you know, about characters that she knew. And we actually got together and read the pilot for a program that Sony is doing with old shows. And it hasn't aired yet. It's going to air sometime this month, I think. But Delta was unavailable. And, of course, we don't have our, our dear Dixie Carter. So um, Kira Sedgwick did Dixie's part. Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> And, and, oh, God, I'm going to screw up her name. Wendy. McClendon Covey? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Just adorable. Red Delta's part. And then Leslie Jordan. Oh, yes. Did um, Ray Don, you know, the, the guy oh. that they meet in the restaurant. He was hysterical. I was just going to bring up Linda Bloodworth Tomasin because she is, if people don't know, the person who created Designing Women and was was like a celebrity when that show was out. She was sort of like a Tina Fey or a Shonda Rhimes person who was known for creating the show. She eventually created Evening Shade. Was the specific energy of having a woman in charge of the voice of the show something you've kept with you throughout your career? What was it like having like that kind of, you know, uh, uh, she's, she's such a strong voice uh, in charge of that show? Well, since it was one of the first shows I did, I guess I didn't have a lot to compare it to, but I was so impressed with how... How bright she is, 
and how much fun she was having writing it. And she literally wrote every word of it, at least the first couple seasons. And she wrote it in longhand on a yellow legal pad. <laughs> and she would always write, and they were always too long. I mean, it was unbelievable. She was just like a machine. The stuff would just pour out of her. And we'd always have to cut, 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 cut all week long. And it got to the point where sometimes they'd actually have to speed us up. So every once in a while you'd go, my voice sounded kind of high on that line, you know, or <laughs> or when you when you crossed your legs, it kind of was like, <laughs> they literally just to get us down to like twenty one point eight minutes or whatever it was per episode. No, I mean she is her her joy in it was was very infectious. Mm -hmm. Thinking of um, other women that you've worked with, um, specifically on Watchmen, you know, I love seeing these just sort of like um, electrifying scenes between, you know, you and Regina King, you and Frances Fisher. You, you have two, like, I feel like my three favorite moments uh, in the series for you are um, your scene with Regina in the mausoleum. Um, you know, that's just like an amazing scene between like two amazing actresses just like being able to go at each other. Um, obviously the... Um, <laughs> The Dr. Manhattan dildo scene. Oh, yes. Um, which is insane. <laughs> uh, and then when um, Francis like, uh, sends you through a trap door. <laughs> Are there any like just fun moments you had from just like working with these actresses where you're just like, wow, it's amazing being able to still work with... Um, great people who are doing good work now? Yeah, no, it was it was great. And I have to say about Frances, she's a friend. And she made me reenact that in a restaurant. And she Twitter, <laughs> put it on her Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that scene with Regina was one of my favorites, um, except that we were both freezing to death <laughs> in that scene. But, you know, it was a great scene because... Lori's thinking that she's just got this perfect little cat and mouse thing she's doing with Angela. And then on oh, that last moment, Angela just flips it on its ear and you think, oh, snap, I didn't see that coming. You know, it's like <laughs> she just totally undercut me. And it was perfect. It was just perfectly written and directed. Regina, I mean, she's such a pro. She's so nice and she's so mm -hmm. great. And, and you know, the, the star of the show always sets the tone. And um, it was just a super great set to be on. You've been on shows, obviously, that have huge fan bases, um, but Watchmen and Legion, um, too, which I also really enjoyed, um, are just these, like, comic book series which have a whole other set of fans, you know? So, like, um, how, just how do you feel preparing for doing these shows where I feel like yeah, the way you described the Regina scene, like it's flipped on its head at the end. I feel like I've seen you for years on these shows like this now where you, you're acting one thing and then we're finding out something later. Um, and you just sort of have to play this idea of everything that I'm talking like could end up being a twist next episode. That's the key to a successful show, you know, and it's always leave them wanting more, you know, and I've just been so incredibly fortunate to work with amazing writers. I mean, Noah Hawley mm -hmm. and you know, Fargo was a high point of my uh, experience as an actor. I mean, that was just an extraordinary experience. You were terrifying on Yes. Fargo. Oh, my God. One of, <laughs> one of the great supporting turns ever. Yes. I was just a supportive mother. 
<laughs> no, I know. I couldn't. Be- I loved one of the first scenes where she's in the kitchen, literally basting a turkey, and her son is out in the barn torturing a guy to death. And she, and you know, she knows what's going on. It's just part of the family business. And he comes in and makes some kind of crude joke, and she just jumps all over him for you know speaking inappropriately in the house. <laughs> <laughs> You're also somebody um, I have so many favorite random roles of. I honestly, until I looked it up, I could not believe you were in Homeward Bound. And I realized, yes, Gene Smart is in Homeward Bound. I remember that. Oh, my God. Um, I, I had to do that. It was my favorite book growing up, and so I had to do that. Oh, brilliant. But uh, uh, you were recently in A Simple Favor. Mm. I loved you in Youth in Revolt as Michael Sarah's mom. Oh, that and specifically, was fun. we brought this up earlier. Your performance in the Brady Bunch movie is one of the great, salacious, like disturbingly sexual comedy performances of that decade. When you took, <laughs> we have to talk about this movie for a second. Did you know it was going to be that hard demented when you started that movie? Because it is so much grosser than you expect the Brady Bunch movie to be. <laughs> I was crushed when they didn't ask me to be in the sequel. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. It's, I, I have to say, it's the only time I've gotten a good review for a movie that I wasn't in. Because the reviewer actually <laughs> said that he missed me not being in it. I was like, aww, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, no. And working with Michael McKean, I mean, I love him. I've, I've played like his wife or his girlfriend like three or four times in different things. He's, he's so fantastic. And But they cut out a couple scenes that I wish they had left in because they... I'm not quite sure where they cut them because they were they were hilarious and they were very short. So it wasn't like they added a lot of time. Like it was so funny because when they first introduced the couples sort of side by side in their houses, they had parallel driveways with a parallel little hedge that separated the driveways, and they spray painted the Brady side of the hedge, brilliant green, and ours was kind of gray and dead and brown, you know? And the two husbands walk out the doors, and Mr. Brady kisses Mrs. Brady, and she hands him his briefcase, and, and my husband just grumbles and walks out of the house, and I heave his briefcase at his head, you know? <laughs> As he's, and and they, they didn't use any of that, and I loved stuff like that, but... <laughs> I love Michael McKeon, and he's so great on Twitter. People should follow him on Twitter. He's always good. He's always good. No, I mean, I really love so much of the work that you do, but like those fun, sexual, but also demented roles like that, and also Samantha Who, but also um, Lana and Frasier, you know? Like, that is like, of course, I was looking back at it and being like, Oh, this is the role that she, like she won for her first Emmy, and I'm like, of course, you you come into that show, which is uh, this comedy of manners, you know, and like this farce told in an American way, and you're just sort of like a character who manages to fit in, but you also just sort of like crash into that show <laughs> and shake up Kelsey Grammer's character so much. That was one of my favorites. I mean, that show I think was so brilliant because it. It never, ever, ever, ever talked down to the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, what other show could make jokes about obscure wine vintages and things and you'd just think it was hilarious? I mean, even if you didn't totally get the joke, it was so organic to the characters. It was so right for each character that you got it, you know, and you just knew that if you just listened, you were just going to have a ball. And every sitcom or every comedy, they know they're successful when the audience is ahead of you. So, like, for instance, when I wake up in the morning with Frasier and there's still a half a glass of wine 
on the nightstand and I'm smoking, which just appalls him, of course. And then I put my cigarette out and wine, and he's like, huh? And I go, oh, I'm sorry, did you want that? <laughs> <laughs> the audience, before I even did it, they were just like, oh, God, oh, God, he's just going to die, you know? <laughs> because they knew him so well as being sort of this fussy, you know, person, but that was a blast, yeah. She had little anger management issues, Lana. <laughs> People would come up to me in grocery stores and they'd say, say it, say it. I'd go, what? You know, uh, put your brother on the phone. You know? <laughs> 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 and they'd say, I say that to my kids all the time. Oh, my God, you said it just like me. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here, Jane. You are truly, it can't be stated um, how much like we adore watching you on screen. Oh, you guys are awesome, too. Also, I feel like that Emmy's going to Gene Smart. That's sort of my feeling. I've, I've done the horse race of it, and that's Don't what I'm thinking. Don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. That'd be nice. I'm oh. trying to decide what mask to wear. <laughs> right. Something with a Swarovski crystal. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm looking through my After Five masks, and I'm going <laughs> to... And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. And listen, we know y'all tuned into this episode knowing that Miss Kamala was the VP pick. And we didn't say nothing about it. <laughs> it's because we were, we, were, we were waiting to give you a dope beat to step to. And I think Aida oh my God. has a key bit. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So news just came out that Joe Biden has decided who he has picked for his vice president. And unfortunately, it is Kamala Harris. This is not what we <laughs> meant when we said pick a black woman. But listen, it's exciting. It's exciting in the way that she broke history. I'm I'm very happy for her. But I literally can't tweet about my disdain for Kamala Harris without my mentions being full of like, you should just be happy that it's a win for black women. A win for which black women? My mama didn't get excited about this. My auntie didn't get excited about this. None of my friends have texted me like, we are not all thriving right now. This is a marginal win at best. I refuse to celebrate some shit that should have happened in 1972 when Shirley Chisholm was running for president. Like, I understand the internet was urging him to pick a black woman. That is a win in and of itself. But this is not, I'm not excited about this. I'm not excited at all. Will I go to the polls? Well, will I do an absentee ballot? Yes. Will I vote for Joe Biden? Yes. Will I have to call Kamala Harris my VP maybe? Unfortunately. But <sighs> at least we know now. And I'm not excited to continue to have conversations about abolishing the police and about black liberation with Kamala Harris as our vice president, a former prosecutor, but I guess that's the reality that we're about to live in. <sighs> so fully keep it. I would say that I am actually probably a bit more excited than you, Aida. Girl. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, you know, that um, she's my anti-com, but uh, <laughs> I am saying that um, I do think that it is exciting to have a black woman on the ticket in general. And, you know, whatever you feel about Kamala's record and there is you know the idea that she was a prosecutor and we're we've all been marching in the streets being like defund the police you know um and there's definitely her record to contend with I would just offer that one 
in this whole idea of let's pick a black woman, you know, let's pick a black woman. Um, we've offered all this extra just like scrutiny on black women, uh, particularly in politics in general. You mentioned Shirley Chisholm yeah. and we had Michelle Obama. These black women are constantly torn apart to shreds in the media um, in the way that we don't tear apart men, you know? And I think that there's definite things to talk about with Kamala's record. And I think that for, from my perspective, she is at least going to be open to um, addressing those and being accountable for them and maybe someone that we can press for um, some progressive platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, we get her and Biden into office. You had Miss like Klobuchar up there. <laughs> you not know, Amy. Like, <laughs> you know, you had Miss Klobuchar up there, like, and and no one was tearing into her record the way that they were into Kamala's. I mean, they weren't just doing it, you know, with like other white people too. You know, it was specifically men. You know, and um, I just think that there is a way that um, people sort of like had so much vitriol mm-hmm. for her, and then. Once, like, we got stuck with Biden, (laughs) everybody on the internet was like, oh, we had so many, like, people of color running for office. And I was like, well, yeah, how do you think we got there? Mm -hmm. I would also just say that my keep it to this whole thing would be the entire VP race, you know, this entire picking one. I remember, like, the LA Times had a whole... um, who will get the rose of Joe Biden, like treating it like it's the fucking bachelor, yeah. which is like demeaning and misogynistic and also just treating the entire pick of who's going to be VP like it was a fucking game show. Right, girl, at least pick know? a show that black women are on. Black women aren't even on <laughs> The Bachelor. Come on. Uh, gassing it up, you know? Like, I feel like the entire VP pick has been gassed up to create unnecessary drama like... Um, Ryan Seacrest has been sending us to commercial break. <laughs> I definitely am sick of like trying to intuit where Joe Biden is coming from and like figuring out like technically who who he should pick or who he won't pick or mm-hmm. like dismissing people out of hand. Like the whole guessing game was super tiring. The only thing I will say about Kamala Harris is I have at least seen the woman express regret about some of the most regrettable yes. parts of her record, like the truancy law that put parents in jail. Not that we don't have 70 other podcasts on this network that will get into this into a more in, in a more detailed way, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard not to sympathize with uh, everybody on the left about this, which is excitement in certain ways and obvious reservations. These are all coming to a head in a way I think we expected it to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that I'm going to be looking towards, like, specifically black trans activists, you know, because there's mm-hmm. also her record, you know, with trans women um, in prison. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking to them, you know, if they are going to be pressing her on issues and if they can get the results that they want, then I'm here for those people. Yeah. The thing I've always said is that black people for decades have been dealing with a political system that is not for them, you know, mm. and just trying to get any sort of leg up. And then when you do get a leg up, um, in order to just stay in office, you end up becoming like a career politician who's more concerned with staying in office than you are with like changing things in office. And I think that it's always going to be our duty as um, voters, as you know, citizens to press our elected officials to do something, anything. And because of the regret that I feel like Kamala seems genuine in for um, her past record. I think that she is a person that we will hopefully be able to push to get some things done. You know, I think we can push Biden to get some things done too, but I mean, his head has someone um, turning a Victrola. (laughs) You know, it's playing Pop Goes the Weasel. So... (laughs) 
I, I have to say, yes, fine. I do prefer your optimistic approach on this. And I will, of course, give Kamala a chance. I wish it were a Stacey Abrams. I wish it were a Keisha Lance Bottoms over. But I understand we have Kamala now. And this is also the only logical option for him to pick a black woman as his running mate after the murders in BLM earlier in the summer. And then also just the history of this country and Joe Biden's damn near daily fuck ups of talking about race. So unfortunately, America is constantly thirsty for law and order. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, America's um, autopilot is sitting on the couch and watching an SVU marathon. Mm -hmm. Literally uh, law and order, yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, connecting to voters uh, in the midst of, like, you know, quote-unquote turmoil, um, here's law and order, you know? Think of Joe Biden as an ideal Jerry Orbach role. Maybe that (laughs) is what will get us through this. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) We will save your uh, uh, bell accent for later. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Lewis, what's your keep it? Um, My keep it is, again, tentative because I'm excited for all pop culture and believe we deserve all of it. So I don't want to shut it down. This is me contradicting the very idea of keep it in the first place. I hope you enjoy this. Stop being um, a diplomat. uh, Cravenness. We're not diplomats over here. Um, Keep it to the new Peacock series, Saved by the Bell, which is a speedy 30 Rock paced update of Saved by the Bell starring Mario Lopez and Elizabeth Berkley. I did not need to see their acting skills updated. I believe I was content with their after-school special level that they gave us in the early 90s. I will say Tracy Wigfield, who was a writer on 30 Rock, who created the show Great News, and on Great News gave us a very funny turn from Nicole Richie. So I'm not saying she is incapable of breathing life into people we don't think have uh, whip-smart comedy in them. But... (laughs) The, the honest problem with this show is the best thing about Saved by the Bell is Lisa Turtle. I thought on that show, she was the comedy hub of that show. She was very glamorous and also kind of had the most, this is in quotes, complexity of a character where she was both brassy and very funny, but also like vulnerable. And she like didn't really get dating and... Anyway, she was the most interesting mm-hmm. character, I think. Whereas, what is A.C. Slater as a character? Like, <laughs> I wrestle and I look good. Like, just, there was no nothing interesting about him. There was one episode where he got into a fight with his dad, who I believe was in the military. Mm-hmm. But something that really rubbed me the wrong way was Elizabeth Berkley at the end of the trailer for this Saved by the Bell show. Uh, she sees somebody with caffeine pills and she, like, runs up to them and goes on this hyper-ironic rant referencing her famous I'm so excited, I'm so excited speech from the original show. Referencing things like that in an ironic meta way is just so over in the way that quoting Mean Girls feels like something I never need to do again. Trust me, we've done every version of bringing this up and (laughs) eking humor out of it. And uh, as much as I enjoy Elizabeth Berkley on the long forgotten Bravo dance series, Step It Up and Dance, (laughs) I I don't need anything else from Jesse Spano. I just don't need anything else. I love Step It Up and Dance. (laughs) You know that. Um, And obviously I will always support Nomi Malone. Right. But um, I'm not a huge fan of, of Showgirls, but I like the five scenes that you need to see on YouTube. It's just too long. It's, it is very long. And um, Paul Verhoeven, unfortunately, decides to take the movie into an aggressive assault on a black woman at the end of it. Yes. Um, so that um, 
Elizabeth Berkeley can have a um, revelation that um, Vegas is evil and she needs to leave before she loses her soul. But of course, she has to witness her black friend be brutally raped um, <laughs> in order to come to that realization, you know? And then she has to bring her knife to um, sort of fight and beat off the um, two white men who attacked her friend. I'm like, we didn't really need that in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Cut that. Yeah. You know, it's like a sexy all about Eve. You know, it's a trashy all about Eve um, with with pool fucking in it, you know, (laughs) Um, and shoving people downstairs. And the unsexiest pool fucking of all time. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I don't know how we go from, thanks, it's a Versace, to... um, here is an extended scene of uh, a black woman being sexually assaulted. Okay. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Lewis, at least this character is being played by Taylor Russell, who was just in Waves opposite Kelvin Harrison Jr. She plays his little sister, and she's a very mm. funny actress. It could be good, is okay. what I'm saying. And Josie Tota <laughs> is in it. Love could her. Oh, I do love Josie Tota. Yes. Well, I, I assume, yes. did Tracy Wigfield work on um, Champions, too, which Josie yes. Tota was on? Okay, yeah. There, there are some good things that could happen, but I, I do pretty much agree with, you know, the whole idea of doing a reboot, you know, and referencing jokes from the original. Oh, such a bad reference. But, you know, it feels like when Meet the Parents came out and, you know, there was that whole... Um, funny line, you know, about like, I have nipples. Can you milk me? Right. You know? And I feel like they like heavily played that up in like promoting Meet the Fockers because they were mm-hmm. like, that's a joke from the first one that you liked. <laughs> so the second thing obviously needs to have some of the same jokes in it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what the best thing about jokes is? Saying them 90 times and finding them equally as funny as the last time you heard it. That's how they work. That's what Twitter is. <laughs> I still, by the way, yes, oh yes. I still, by the way, there's still a class of people who are out there quoting Airplane and Caddyshack and these things all days too. I mean, it, it's a culture to reference the same humor again and again and again. But Me? I, I would have no idea oh, yeah. Memes? About, about, quo- about quoting the same thing and expecting people to find it funny. You should I mean, try a meme. But you if, should try if, a meme sometime. I mean... But wow, if I ever did that, what <laughs> a moment, moment. What it is would Ira, be. Yeah, what does Ira know about running a title into the ground? What a moment, most ground. pleasing to me in my career that that would be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ira, what's uh, your keep it? My keep it this week is to this actor, this charlatan, mm. this punk-ass bitch. The wind-up girl. <laughs> Madonna? Keep, keep <laughs> it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it to Justin Hartley. Oh. 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 Ex-husband of Chriselle Staus, who is the lead of Selling Sunset, the Netflix reality show about women working in real estate for the Oppenheim Group in Los Angeles that came back for its third season this weekend. In it, we finally get the storyline that we've been waiting for since the second season when it was teased, Chriselle and Justin's divorce proceedings began. And on the show, she gets a text message that basically says, it's over. You know? <laughs> and so um, we knew it was going to be messy, but just like seeing he said, this the is text not message us. <laughs> being sent to her. <laughs> <laughs> this is not us. <laughs> Aida. <laughs> we are done. <laughs> uh, he said, you know what? You are not my passion for life. Uh-huh, 
Uh, that was a reference to the television series Passions, everybody. Yes. Yes, which he was on along with his first wife, Lindsay Corbin. Yes. Uh, who played Teresa Lopez Fitzgerald on that show. And then also later ended up on Days of Our Lives where Chriselle was on Days of Our Lives as well. So I love Chriselle. It's really making the rounds. And yet, you know, the, sh- the show is fun. It's nice having it back. I could also say keep it to Netflix for the show being so fucking short. It is truly eight episodes every season, and they're 30 minutes long. What is this, a Britcom? Truly. <laughs> <laughs> truly because of the divorce stuff and because um, truly one of the worst reality TV villains ever, Christine, um, is planning her wedding on the show this season, which um, ends up looking like a scene from... Once Upon a Time on ABC. Uh, there's like, she wears a black wedding dress and like fake snow falls down. Uh, it looks like this ugly winter wonderland designed by Melania Trump. Um, those two just sort of take up the oxygen in the third season and so many of the other fun characters don't really get anything to do. And I'm like, if ever a show needed to be just like 20 fucking episodes, <laughs> have it be this. Yeah, at this point he is um, divorced to soap actresses that I adore and I'm just not seeing it for Justin Hartley anymore Mm. and I tweeted as much and (laughs) of course Chris Shell then responded like uh, a joke like um, you know me trying not to like this and be classy or something right and then it gets written up in like Just Jared and and E.T. Tonight and I'm like (laughs) oh great now whenever you search Chriselle and Justin Hartley, you see my tweet. I was like, I can't believe this nigga sent her a text. I just want to say that just, to divorce her. just Jared in general, I feel like half the news is whoever runs that site searching at replies on Twitter and turning it into like a scoop. I mean, I'm not saying it's not um, impressively done and whoever does it is not super dogged, but I don't know that that's news. But okay, go ahead. Yes. Well, I mean, my favorite Just Jared stories are really just like um, Hillary Duff goes to store wearing face mask and picks up oat milk. <laughs> Can't argue with it. <laughs> Tell me more. It's Tell the me truth. More. The people want to know. <laughs> it's just describing things that happen. <laughs> um, but no, I really adore um, Selling Sunset and it's fun. And it was so over. It was over so soon. And now because of coronavirus... Who knows when we'll get season four? Stay home, people, so that <laughs> I can get season four of Selling Sunset. After the housing market crisis that we're about to receive, they'll still be selling Sunset. Can't wait. <laughs> Cannot wait. Anyway, thank you again to Zadie Smith for joining us and also Gene Smart. Thanks for listening to Keep It, as usual. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Love you. Bye. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Melkonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, The title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun. 
where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.